History beckons us to call out for a deliverer. Whether you consider the uh, horrific concentration camps during the Holocaust, the demoralizing and inhumane treatment of African Americans during slavery and later by the Ku Klux Klan, or the acts of terror perpetrated on the soil of this country some 19 years ago, or the various afflicting illnesses that we face today. It doesn't take much of an argument to convince us that humanity needs help. We need a deliverer. A deliverer to bring justice to injustice and mercy to those in need of mercy. Friends, you and I both know that though silliness abounds in our world, and uh, though we ourselves sometimes perpetuate and encourage such silliness, uh, we know that the sober need for deliverance from sin, from sickness, and from senseless violence still remains. Still remains. And this morning, we get to consider from God's Word that God not only understands this need, but that He answers it and meets it. God not only promises to send a deliverer, but He actually sends a deliverer. That's what we learn from Psalm 110, that through Jesus, deliverance has come and is coming. That's what we learn from Psalm 110. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, to Psalm 110. You can find Psalm 110 on page 509 of the Bibles provided. Psalm 110, our psalm for this morning, tells us how God will bring about the destruction of His enemies and the deliverance of His people. He will destroy His enemies and deliver His people through His anointed one, His King, who is also a priest. That's the startling message of Psalm 110. God's King is also a priest. God's priest King will destroy His enemies and deliver his people, which means he has the power to rule and the power to redeem. And the, the question that Psalm 110 asks of each of us this morning is this. Will we give ourselves freely and willingly to God's priests and king? Or will we stubbornly continue in our rebellion and so face his wrath on the last day? Will you respond to Jesus in repentance and faith? Or will you rebel against him? Let me read Psalm 110 now. A psalm of David. The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments. From the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This short psalm, if you can believe it, is one of the most quoted psalms, if not the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted in three Gospels. It's quoted multiple times in the book of Acts. It's made the basis of the argument for nearly the entire book of Hebrews. And powerful allusions are made to it in the Revelation. 
because of the, the prominence of this psalm in the New Testament, I want to take a slightly different approach than I normally take as I preach to the psalms. Uh, first, we're going to try and understand this psalm in its Old Testament context. We'll walk through it, reflect on what it means. We'll look at some Old Testament passages that have bearing on it. And then, after we've done that, I want us to do a lot of page-turning in the New Testament. Uh, I want your fingers, your phalanges, finding passages in the New Testament. But more importantly, I want us to see what Jesus saw in this psalm and what his disciples saw in this psalm. We'll look at some direct quotations, some allusions in the New Testament. So I want to commend you to be an active reader of God's Word this morning. Otherwise, you'll be bored. You should turn in your Bible to the passages we turn to, and you should read along. And teens, I'm looking at you. You can definitely do this too. Show your parents up. Get there faster. Okay? But keep your ears open. Keep your eyes open. And read and see if God's Word says that these things are so. Sometimes I'll tell you to turn to passages. Sometimes I'll tell you just to listen. Uh, do your best to, to follow along. So, just two headings for the, the sermon this morning. Two points. One... Understanding Psalm 110, they're such boring titles. Understanding Psalm 110, and then unpacking Psalm 110. If you want spicier sermon headings than that, uh, we can go with shadow and substance. Shadow and substance. All right, those two points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. So in the first, we're going to understand Psalm 110 in its Old Testament context. We're looking at shadow there. And in the second, we're going to unpack its message in light of Jesus, who's the substance of Psalm 110. Let's begin with our first point. Understand Psalm 110 or spicy shadow. Well, you look at the inscription there. What do we see? Right? The first thing we need to understand this psalm, it's written by David. It, this is hugely significant, right? David is one of the first kings of Israel, and God gave David a very special promise in 2 Samuel 7. And I don't think we can fully understand and appreciate Psalm 110 without that passage. So, Keeping one finger here in this passage, turn backwards in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 259. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Listen to this very special promise that God gave to David and consider how, how through it, David's hope extended beyond his own lifetime, but not beyond his own line. Through the prophet Nathan, in verses 12 and 13, do you see what, what the Lord said to David? Verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that, that means when, you're, when you die, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We can't help but notice that word forever there. It appears in connection with a future king and kingdom. One of David's offspring, a son down the line, will reign on David's throne forever. And this covenant promise or oath sworn by God is further developed by the prophets. And, and they're clearly anticipating a, a Davidic king who will fully and finally rule on David's throne forever. He'll rule as Lord Forever. Perhaps your mind runs to uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Just listen to that passage. Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Yahweh of hosts will do this. Right here in 2 Samuel 7, we're seeing that this is a significant Old Testament hope. That a son of David will rule and reign forever. This is a promise that God gave to David there in 2 Samuel 7. But turning back to Psalm 110, go ahead and turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 110. That's page 509, in case your finger came came out. 509 of the Bibles provided. We see that God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 already begins to help us understand the first few words of Psalm 110. Particularly those words, the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord. Now, whenever you see the, uh, the capital letters there, L-O-R-D, in all caps, what you need to know is that's a translation uh, of the Hebrew word Yahweh. That means that's the name that God gave to himself when he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. But we've got two lords in, in, in the space of five words, don't we? We have an all caps L-O-R-D, Lord, or Yahweh, and we've got a, a Lord with the lowercase letters, right? O-R-D. That Lord with the lowercase O-R-D is a translation of the word Adonai or Master. Uh, This is what David actually called Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 24 verse 7. That Saul, King Saul was his Adonai and Master. This term is used for someone in authority, often someone in kingly authority. And what David is saying here is that the Lord, that Yahweh, the mighty God of Israel, speaks to his Lord, David's Lord. Lowercase O-R-D in that Lord. Yahweh speaks to David's Master and Ruler. Yahweh speaks to David's king. Well, who, who is that? Who is David's king? Well, David already knows from God's promise, right, in 2 Samuel 7, that one of his sons, an offspring from his line, is going to sit on his throne and rule forever. This offspring from David's line is going to rule even over the great king David. So David foresees in Psalm 110 that there is a greater king coming than him, one that David will serve. David knows that he is not Israel's hope, but that this promised Lord and King who will come from his line is Israel's hope. So do we understand what David sees here? Or perhaps I should say, do you hear what David hears in this conversation? David hears Yahweh speaking to his future offspring who will be his Lord and King. I know I'm supposed to say this till the second point, but let's just be clear. David's hearing a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. He's hearing God the Father speak to God the Son. And now perhaps you wonder, how can David hear this conversation? David is clearly inspired of the Holy Spirit of God. We heard Jesus even say that earlier as we read from Matthew's Gospel. David is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to, to hear and receive this conversation. David hears Yahweh speaking to his Lord. and What does he hear? He hears Yahweh command his anointed one to sit at his right hand, the place of honor, while he goes about the work of bringing his enemies under his feet. Yahweh will subdue the enemies of the son of David. And he will put his feet on their necks. That's what the uh, footstool imagery communicates. It's an image of total domination, total subjugation of his enemies. And there in verse 2, David appears to pause in communicating what he's heard. Perhaps he's now describing what, uh, the, this, how this promise of Yahweh will be worked out. Yahweh will send the anointed one scepter from Zion. Scepters were were given to kings, right, as a symbol of their sovereign rule. David's saying 
that Yahweh will send forth that symbol of sovereignty. For His anointed one will rule in the midst of His enemies. And notice how this anointed one, David's future son and Lord, uh, with the lowercase r-d, is being described. He's being described in kingly terms. He's a king who, who rules from his throne. He rules over his enemies. And they have no choice in the matter. While his enemies resist his rule, his people receive and welcome his rule. In fact, they, they freely offer themselves in the service of David's greater son and God's great king. The language of verse 3 is it's a little difficult to understand, but what's being depicted here is that the people of the king are they're, they're consecrated for service. They're set apart in holy garments. They're youthful and energetic and full of life like the dew at the start of the day. They are fresh and ready to serve. They will voluntarily, even eagerly, come to this king, ready to do his will. Christian, is that you? Are you eager? Are you ready? Are you desirous? Are you coming to the king saying, how can I serve you and your people? You, you need to minister and serve and not simply be served. We've got to be on guard against being consumers. We must be contributors in Christ's church. There's a a ministry that needs to take place. You need to be involved in making sure that ministry takes place. Christ calls us into his service. And we're called to serve him as king. Well, in verse 4, David, he reveals to us another utterance that he's heard. In verse 1, we heard that Yahweh said to David's son and Lord, sit at my right hand. Now in verse 4, we hear David repeat an unchangeable promise given to his future offspring and Lord. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this king with a scepter will also be a priest forever. This king who will reign on David's throne will also be a priest forever. But who is who's Melchizedek? And what does he have to do with anything? We're most familiar with the Aaronic and Levitical priesthoods of, of Aaron and the Levites because of the prominence that they're given in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But Melchizedek, he is an admittedly enigmatic figure in the Bible. Uh, Keeping one finger here, we're going to go backwards again, back toward the beginning, go to Genesis chapter 14. That's on page 10 of the Bible's provided. Let me just bring you up to speed with what's going on in Genesis chapter 14. Abram, uh, who's now a follower of God Most High, um, because he's believed God's promise, he's just rescued his nephew Lot. Um, And along with uh, other men, women, and children, Abram, he's just defeated four kings. And after this victory, Abram meets with a few kings in the king's valley. It's a great place for kings to meet. Now take a look at verse 18. Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Isn't that interesting? Here we've got this guy, Melchizedek. He's both a king and a priest. He's king of Salem, Jerusalem. He's king of Salem, which the writer of Hebrews tells us he's a king of peace. He's the king of righteousness. In addition to this, he's, he's also a priest. Now think about it. At this point in redemptive history, right, in the story of, of the Bible, early on in Genesis chapter 14, we, we don't, God has not established a priesthood. And yet here we're told that he's a priest, and not just any priest, he's a priest of God most high. He then does what priests in that day did. He, he blesses Abraham. Abram uh, gives him a tithe, a tenth of everything, and off he disappears. 
he leaves just as quickly as he came. We don't hear about Melchizedek anymore in the Bible until you get to Psalm 110, verse 4. In fact, we don't hear anything else about Melchizedek after Psalm 110 until we get to the book of Hebrews. So the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 3 and 4 about Melchizedek, he, speaking about Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. So you hear what the writer of the Hebrews is, is saying there. He's basically saying, we know so little about Melchizedek. But what we do know is that his priesthood was not based upon being descended from a particular line. Uh, turning back, you were in Genesis, I think. Turn back to Psalm 110, verse 4. Again, that's page 509. The Bible's provided. What we see here is that Yahweh swears an oath that will not change. Yahweh swears that David's Lord will not only be a king, but also a priest. And in fact, he will be a priest not by descent, but by declaration. All other lines of the priest that we have in the Bible are given by descent. You come from someone's father. But not the priestly order of Melchizedek. This line was given by declaration from God. So this king and priest, he's going to be a unique figure. He'll be like Melchizedek, who was a king and priest. And then take a look at verses 5 through 7. David is here responding to this declaration by Yahweh. He does this by speaking back to Yahweh about his Lord, his Adonai, his master. David affirms that he's at Yahweh's right hand. He's seated in that place of honor and authority. He tells us that his Lord has a coming day of wrath. A day when he will execute kings and judge the nations. This judgment will not be lim limited to a particular area of the globe. No, it will span the globe. All over the wide earth, the chiefs will be shattered and the corpses will be scattered. David tells us there in verse 7 that his Lord will drink from the brook by the way. After he has executed his judgment on his enemies, he's going to refresh himself. He, he will drink, he will rise, he will lift up his head, knowing that his victory is complete, and survey the realm over which he rules. And when he does, he will find that he has no more enemies. And that, that's where Psalm 110 concludes. And it's a fitting end, really, to Psalm 110. The psalm began with David's Lord having enemies, needing to be subdued, and it concludes with his Lord refreshed, having defeated and subdued his enemies. Now I wonder, after having come to understand Psalm 110, I hope a little better, uh, if you think that this is, like, this is definitely what the world needs. I mean, when you think of what the world needs, is, is this what you think of? Like, this is what the world needs. When you look at the world, you see sin, you see sickness, you see senseless violence. This is what the world needs. Do you see how this psalm is actually a message of deliverance and hope? Do you see how it answers the problem that's presented to us in the very beginning of the Bible? And the problem that we all see actually each and every day in this world. If you, if you know the story of the Bible and the story of your own life, then you know that God created the world and everything in it. Having created man, we learn in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, that God set man in a beautiful garden, calling him to, to tend and keep it. But sadly, the first enemy of God, Satan, in the form of a serpent, he slithered in and tempted the first man and the first woman. 
Satan tempted Adam and Eve to live their own way rather than God's way to become really an enemy of God. They were tempted to rebel. They gave in to that temptation. They sinned against God. And so all mankind descending from them joined in their rebellion against God. And the natural inclination of our hearts, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, is to rebel against God. In the face of Adam and Eve's sin, God uttered a gracious promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He would defeat the enemies of sin, death, and the serpent. And to use the language of Psalm 110.1, He would rule. His king would rule. This promised son would rule in the midst of his enemies. This is the hope that Psalm 110 holds out to us. And we find in the New Testament that this hope is met in Jesus Christ. So let's turn now and unpack the truth of Psalm 110 in light of Jesus Christ. This is the second point we're working through this morning. Unpacking Psalm 110, or for those of you taking the spicy track for sermon headings, substance. Substance. What's the substance of Psalm 110? It's Jesus. Jesus is the substance. And we're going to let the New Testament writers unpack the truth of Psalm 110 to show us that Jesus is its substance. And as we begin, let me just say this. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, the Apostle Paul tells young Timothy, a pastor of the church in Ephesus, to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. And so from this point forward in the sermon, that's what we're going to be doing a lot of. We've done a little bit of it. We're going to do a lot more of it now. We're going to be reading significant and sometimes lengthy passages uh, in the New Testament. Because the New Testament, it really tells us three simple things about Psalm 110. It tells us first that this psalm is about Jesus. Second, that he is sitting on his throne and that he will come to judge just as this psalm promised. And third, that Jesus is a priest who ministers and intercedes for his people. These are the three truths that the New Testament unpacks for us. First, the New Testament tells us that this psalm is about Jesus. And Jesus actually tells us this himself. Jesus tells us, that he is the substance of Psalm 110. We, we read it earlier in the service, but I want us to just look at a few verses of it. Go ahead and turn back to Matthew 22, especially verses 41 to 46. Matthew chapter uh, 22. That's page 828, I believe, of the Bibles provided. Um, beginning in chapter 1, our brother Derek kind of mentioned some of the events of the chapter. Beginning in chapter 21, right, the, the Pharisees, the religious teachers... Uh, the scribes, they've been throwing all kinds of questions at Jesus in order to trap him. And you've got to love, like, the topics they pick, right? They ask questions concerning his authority. Where do you, where do you think you have the authority to do the things you're doing? Uh, they, they ask him about the greatest commandment. They ask him about his thoughts. What are your thoughts on taxes and government? That's like a great way to catch people, to trap people, right? And they ask him all these questions. And Jesus answers them one and one and one again. And then in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46, Jesus, he just, he turns the tables on them. And he asks them the question to end all questions. And it's a question that's based upon Psalm 10, verse, Psalm 110, verse 1. Read Matthew 22, uh, just verses um, 41 to 46 again. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Right? It's the question to end all questions. Jesus was effectively saying to his ears, do you, do you want to know the authority by which I do the things I do? I do them by my own authority as David's Lord. I'm King David's Lord, the one who's been given authority by God to rule. Jesus is saying, look, you may owe taxes to Caesar, but you owe your life to me because I am the great son of David. I am the king. Jesus was saying, you can ask me about the resurrection, but Psalm 110 proves Yahweh spoke to me in the councils of eternity and declared that I would be victorious over death. Right? Jesus, he's just proved to them from Psalm 110 that he's the promised Messiah. And instead of opening their mouths in worship and offering themselves freely to him, they closed their mouths. They held on to their sinful rebellion. Both Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, they recount this same scene. But Jesus, he wasn't the only one who recognized that Psalm 110 was about him. So did his disciples. And it's what they preached after his resurrection and ascension into heaven. Turn to the book of Acts. Move forward in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Um, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 910. Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 29 to 39. In, in this chapter, we find the Apostle Peter. He's preaching in Jerusalem. Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the appointed time. Jesus ascended into heaven. And then shortly after that, he poured out the Holy Spirit of God. It was known as Pentecost. That's what the event was taking place. There was an amazing display of God's power. And Peter used that event as an opportunity to explain that this was in fulfillment of God's plan all along. In fact, the outpouring of the Spirit had to occur as a consequence of the life and ministry of Jesus and His sitting on the throne. The outpouring of the Spirit occurs because of this. And it's at this point that Peter turns and explains in his sermon that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he's ascended, and he's seated at God's right hand. To prove it, he quotes Psalm 110. Let's begin in verse 29 of Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read through verse 39. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received the promise, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, 
What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, do you see how Peter is unpacking Psalm 110 in his sermon? He says that Jesus, having accomplished his work of rescuing sinners and in defeating the enemy of death by his resurrection from the grave, he has taken a seat at God's right hand in fulfillment of Psalm 110.1. Having been seated at God's right hand, and notice verse 33, Peter says, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then Peter's hearers, they have a response to this, don't they? They recognize that they have got to come to terms with the resurrected Lord Jesus. They've got to submit themselves to his rule. They've got to freely offer themselves. And so they they effectively ask, right, how, how do we do this? And Peter tells them there in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what Peter is saying is this, turn away from your sin. Forsake your rebellion. Turn away from your warfare with God. Publicly express that you're with the Lord Jesus. Submit to His command to be baptized. Publicly express that He's your Lord because He died for you and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you are wondering, and I'm talking to you now, if you are here, here now, wondering, how, how do I apply Psalm 110 to my life? Well, here's the chief way you apply Psalm 110. You repent of your sins and you turn and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You freely offer yourself to Him as your Savior and Lord. Say, Lord, have your way in me and in my life. Use me however you will. Call me into your service. And here's the thing. There's no greater Lord than Jesus. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says. So flip forward. Keep flipping forward in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. That's on page 1001 of the Bibles provided. And here's the point that the writer of the Hebrews is about to make about Psalm 110. In verses 1 through 14, the writer of the Hebrews says that Psalm 110, it's about Jesus. And Psalm 110 proves that Jesus is greater even than the angels in heaven. Like You think the angels are great? They're these incredible beings that God has made. But Jesus, He is greater than them. Let's pick up in verse 5. I think I'm going to read to verse 12. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? And the answer right is none. Keep going. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God never said that to any angels. He said it to Jesus. And again, verse 6, When he brings the firstborn into this world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels his winds and his his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. 
They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, note the quotation of Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There's the quote of Psalm 110.1. It's the last. Notice that. It's the last and really his most forceful argument in the whole train of argument. That God the Father has uniquely spoken in His Son, through His Son, and actually to His Son. Psalm 110.1 is the ultimate proof of the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 110.1 also communicates that Jesus has enemies and that He will judge them because God the Father has given Jesus the authority to judge. That's the second thing that the New Testament teaches us about Psalm 110. King Jesus will come to judge, for God the Father has given Jesus the authority to judge. And while Jesus is at the present time seated on His throne, one day He will come to judge, just as is promised in verses 5-7 to of Psalm 110. And it seems to me that Jesus, uh, in John chapter 5, verses 27-29, to states in no uncertain terms, that the Father has given him the authority to judge. So just listen as I read to John chapter 5, verses 27 to 29. And the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now I'm sure as you'll recall from verses 5 to 7, of Psalm 110 communicates the power of Christ's judgment, right? He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. and He will scatter their corpses all over the wide earth. Well, turn to Revelation chapter 19. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. That's on uh, page 1040 of the Bibles provided. We're going to read verses 11 to 21 of Revelation 19. And in this passage, what we hear is a vision of what was promised in Psalm 110, verses 5 to 7. The Apostle John is effectively unpacking the promise, uh, the, the promised judgment from Psalm 110, verses 5 to 7. Take a look there, beginning verse 11 of Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a voice loud he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured 
and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These, were two, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's a startling, horrific image, isn't it? Now, one of the mistakes that folks often make when reading the book of Revelation is to, to go back and to kind of try and pick through all the details. Like when you do that, you sometimes lose the forest for the trees. So, for example, like you go to verse 12, you grab that word diadems, and we try to sort through what, what does this mean, what does it refer to, and we lose sight of the fact that what John is doing is he's throwing image after image of us just to communicate one thing. Jesus is coming to judge. Jesus is coming to judge. And that judgment will be swift. It will be final. It will be total. It will be ultimate. It will be irreversible. And there will not be a single place on earth on that day where you can hide from His judgment. Remember, that's where Psalm 110 ended. And that's what it promised. And this is where I hope that you see that the declaration of verse 4, that the promised one of that psalm will be a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, is such a blessing and mercy to receive from our God. I hope you see just how wonderful that declaration is. How is it that we may go from being enemies of Jesus, who are in danger of facing this judgment in Revelation 19, how is it that we go from being enemies of Jesus to being on Jesus' side in that battle. In the words of Psalm 110.3, how do we become part of the people who freely offer themselves to the Lord Jesus? Or in the words of Revelation chapter 19, verse 14, how do we become those who are a part of the army of heaven? Just consider that, that imagery. Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Only through the priestly work of Jesus. Do you see how central Psalm 110 verse 4 is? Do you see the mercy of God in saying to His Son, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's only because of Jesus' priestly work that we may become those whose sins, though they are like scarlet, are washed white as snow. That we may be arrayed in that fine linen, white and pure. This is the third thing that the New Testament teaches us about Psalm 110, that Jesus, He is that priest who has served and is even now interceding for His people. We see that in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 to 10, where we're told that Jesus served after the order of Melchizedek and that He offered up Himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, so to reconcile us to God. Now, re remember what we learned about Melchizedek, we thought about that Jesus, he's, he's part of that order, not by descent, but by declaration from God. He's, he, Jesus, he did not exalt himself as priest. He did not appoint himself as priest. Rather, God the Father declared that he was made a priest. Just listen to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 to 10. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That is such wonderful news. God himself declared that Jesus would serve as priest. And it's because Jesus obediently served as priest, in the words of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, that he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So friends, brothers and sisters, come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. In his life and death on the cross, he suffered for you. That was part of his priestly work, offering that sacrifice, so that you would not have to suffer His wrath on the last day. For those who trust in Jesus, their judgment on the last day was brought forward in time and poured out on Christ on the cross. He was laid in the tomb. But three days later, He was raised from the grave. Vindicated. He was proving to us that His sacrifice did satisfy God's just demands. The requirements of the law for our sin have been met and paid. Jesus was paid the wages that we've earned due to our sin. He was paid that in his death. Now remember that Hebrews chapter 1, it told us that Jesus, he's the ultimate Lord. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us that he's the appointed priest to minister on our behalf. And Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that he's the final priest. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. That's on page one thousand. And four. In this chapter, Psalm 110, verse 4 is quoted twice. And this chapter tells us that Jesus is better than all the priests who ever came before because he comes from Melchizedek's line and because his priesthood came with an oath from God. Now pick up reading there in verse 22 of chapter 7. The author has just said that Jesus is a better priest. Because his priesthood came with an oath. Now look at verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that's Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now pause. In other words, he holds it forever because he's alive. Right? He's been raised from the dead. Because he lives, his priesthood actually continues on, unlike all those other priests. But what difference does this make? Verse 25, keep reading. Consequently, in other words, because he lives, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heaven. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, for, first for his own sins and then for those people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is a better priest 
He can save to the uttermost. You may think you're far off, but you, you're not outside the reach of the Lord Jesus. You can't go that far. There's, there's no such thing for Jesus. In the words of, of John Newton, our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Believe. Believe that when Jesus offered up his life on the cross as a substitute for sinners, that he did that for you. Let's read just one more reference to Psalm 110 in the book of Hebrews. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 23. Begins on page 1006 of the Bibles provided. And and just so you know, um, this is still part of of the writer's argument for why Jesus is a better priest than all who have gone before. But what I want you to notice about this passage is that the writer of the Hebrews actually brings together Psalm 110 verse 1 and Psalm 110 verse 4. In other words, he brings together the reality that Jesus is king and priest. He refers to Christ's kingship by referring to him being seated and his enemies being made his footstool. And then he explains that his priestly ministry obtained the forgiveness of our sins and so opened the way to God. And after explaining this, he says, hold on to Jesus because he's your only hope. And he really is your hope. So hold on to him. That's what the writer is effectively saying. Let me read verses 11 to 23 now. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, in other words, by the priestly ministry of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Friends, brothers and sisters, the truth of Psalm 110, it calls us to offer ourselves freely to our King, to serve Him as our Lord, to trust Him as our priest. And one day soon, He will come in His power, in His authority, and in His wrath. It will be a day of deep darkness and gloom and destruction for those who failed to fully and freely offer themselves to Him in repentance and faith. But it will be a day of joy, of unending joy for His people as He fully and finally delivers them from sin, 
from sickness and from senseless violence. So come under the rule of the king of Psalm 110 today by recognizing in faith that as priest, Jesus gave his life so that you might have eternal life through him.